Most people never reach financial independence. Most people attempt to retire at age 65 or 70 and they can't. Owning real estate is one of the best tools for building long-term wealth. You don't have to be great to start, but you have to start to be great. About two years ago, I recorded episode number 38 with Rachel Richards, and the title of the episode was Financially Independent at Age 27. That title should get your attention regardless of who you are, and our first conversation has been one of the most popular episodes in the history of the podcast. We talk about how Rachel graduated from college debt-free, a little about her path into accumulating investment real estate rentals, as well as tips from her first book, Money Honey, a simple seven-step guide to getting your financial shit together. I've had a lot of questions about this episode and requests to have Rachel back for more details. So we are going to take this to a new level here today. We'll go over the specifics of Rachel's financial path, tips on growing your investment real estate portfolio, and insights from Rachel's second book, which is called Passive Income, Aggressive Retirement. You'll learn how Rachel went from zero to 38 doors within a few short years. And to help you get started, you'll hear how to download Rachel's Passive Income Starter Kit for free. I'm grateful to be back today with Money Honey, Rachel Richards. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. I'm really excited to have you here today. Again, Rachel, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Dan. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be back for the second time. Great. Well, let's dive right in. And why don't you tell people what does life look like for you right now? It's two years since uh, our last episode. How are things going? Oh my gosh. Life truly has never been better or cooler. My husband and I moved to Colorado last year and we just moved away from Colorado because we are now traveling around the Western US for the rest of the year. So we're going from Airbnb to Airbnb. I'm recording this podcast from the Oregon coast and my dog got to see the ocean for the first time the other day, which is the cutest thing I've ever witnessed. So life is great. That is awesome. So you guys are traveling around the United States and you're able to do your work from wherever you are. So you're just kind of relocating from one cool place to another cool place. I know you're coming to California pretty soon, right? Yes, we we hope so. (laughs) (laughs) 
Awesome. Yeah, VRBO has canceled on us. And so the travel sometimes is not as glamorous as it seems, but it's all a part of the adventure. So we're having fun. <laughs> That's fantastic. So great to hear. Great to hear. So listen, you have done really well financially through primarily through the purchase of investment real estate. I know that's been the major piece of your plan. Tell us why you feel every young person should make owning real estate a part of their financial plan. Yes, absolutely. I I think owning real estate is one of the best tools for building long-term wealth. And there are four benefits. A lot of people look at owning rental property and they think, this is great. I'm making rental income, passive income. That's great. There's actually four financial benefits though. So number one definitely is the cash flow or the ongoing passive income that you can be making. Number two is the equity buildup. Because you are making a certain amount of rental income each month, which covers your mortgage and other expenses. So after 30 years, you now own a property free and clear, having only paid the down payment. So that's enormous. That's equity buildup. That's wealth accumulation over time. Number three are the tax benefits, which are huge. Depreciation. There's other tax benefits. So that's always a big one. And then number four, I sometimes like to just count this as a bonus because we can't always count on it, but appreciation. So if the property itself goes up in value over time, that's even more wealth that you've accumulated. So those four benefits, I mean, I truly think every young person should own real estate. Yeah. And I think it's important for people to be clear which, you know, how do they rank those benefits and what are they looking mostly for? Because there's a huge difference in the kind of property you will look for if your primary goal is cash flow versus if your primary goal is appreciation, right? Have you noticed that? Yes, absolutely. And so some investors, they don't really care about making cash flow or passive income. They're just in it for the long-term wealth accumulation play. Other investors, they don't care about appreciation. They want as much income right now as possible. And that's the category I fell in. So I always prioritize that number one benefit, the passive income over all of the other ones. Yeah. And I would say in my life, I started out with thinking about the appreciation side and I wanted to buy properties that would appreciate. I've primarily, well, at first I primarily was buying properties in California where you'll get that appreciation over time, but you don't get positive cash flow. In fact, I had probably slightly negative cash flow on my first several investment properties, but I had enough income where that didn't matter. But then I got to a point where I was like, I don't care about appreciation anymore. What I want now is to buy properties that can begin to replace my income because my kids are going to benefit from the appreciation, not me at this point, at least in my life. And so, you know, it really became more of the focus on cash flow. And so for anybody that's looking to replace their work income and be able to live freely the way you live, the cash flow side is obviously a huge factor. And it's something that everybody should be, should be conscious of making sure that they're, that they're looking for things that are cashing positively. Yes, absolutely. And I remember when I first got into real estate investing, I had, I'd read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, in high school. And that was the first thing that turned me on to real estate investing. And something clicked in me at that time. I I realized real estate investing was my way out of the rat race. Because even at age 18, I knew that I would not be happy working for somebody else. And that was just me. That's just a personal thing. Like I want to be my own boss and be able to work on my own time and from wherever I want. And once I realized about this concept of cash flow and passive income... 
I had this epiphany, which is that once your passive income exceeds your living expenses, you're financially independent. So I began working towards that. And my goal with with rental properties was to own enough that I was generating $10,000 per month in passive income. And that is what I was able to achieve by age 27, which is when I quit my full-time job. Yeah. Awesome. That's so cool to hear. My mindset was that, you know, I, I wanted to work my Cutco role. Like I, I enjoy what I do. And I, you know, there was always, this is something that I've always wanted to continue doing. So I wasn't looking to necessarily replace my income or achieve a certain amount of passive income. And that's why investing in properties with appreciation potential was where I sort of started out. But again, like you get to a point where you've accumulated enough in sort of net worth that you realize like, okay, I'm going to be fine with what I have now. If my net worth flattens out, you know, I'm going to be fine with what I have now. But uh, thinking about ways of getting that positive cash flow to facilitate that retirement time becomes much more prevalent. And I just admire that you sort of started out in that mindset and got there so quickly in your life. It's uh, It's very cool. Thank you. I have a new phrase and it's, Cash flow is queen. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Thank you. I like it a lot. That's good. So look, a lot of people have a hard time getting started with real estate at a young age. And oftentimes the reasons why they don't get started might not be valid. I think there's some misconceptions out there and you might be able to clear some of these up. Absolutely. I started investing at age 24, which is pretty young. But I could have started investing years earlier. If I knew then what I know now, I could have started investing so much sooner. But there were all these limiting beliefs that I kept telling myself. I was telling myself things like, well, I don't have enough money to start investing. I don't have enough knowledge. I don't have enough experience. You know, I don't know what I'm doing. But what I've realized now is that there are many ways that you can start investing in real estate without even having to come up with a 20% down payment. So I'll talk about two of those now because I'd like to get into specifics for people. One of them is becoming a wholesaler first. So the hardest part of investing in real estate is finding the good deals, especially in this market. The market's absolutely crazy. It's hard to find anything that would make for a good investment property. Wholesalers, what they do is they go out and they do the hard work of finding deals by having... There's all these different off-market strategies we can talk about. And then... They put an offer on the property. They get something called an assignable contract. And they take this contract and they can sell it to another investor. And the the investor will basically pay a markup to them, a fee basically for finding the deal. So I've seen wholesalers make 5, 10, 15, 20 grand per deal just by finding the deals for other investors who have the money to actually purchase it. If I had known that was even a thing, I would have been out there wholesaling like crazy, finding good leads, finding good deals, building this network of investors. And what's great about this is not only as you're you're learning a ton as you go, but it only takes a few of these to then have enough money that you can purchase your own rental property. Hmm. So that's the first one. That's wholesaling. And then the second strategy is something called house hacking. Okay. One of the problems with buying investment property is that lenders typically require you to put 20 to 25% down. In California, that's a lot of money. As you know, not a lot of people have a hundred grand lying around to, to put towards a down payment. When you live in a property though, as a primary residence, then you can put 
10 or 15% down with a conventional loan or 3.5% down with an FHA loan or 0% down with a VA loan. And that makes it a lot easier to buy a property. So with house hacking, what you do, there's a couple ways to do it. One of them is that you purchase a property that might need some work, might need some renovations. You live in it, you fix it up yourself. Maybe it's just a light cosmetic update. And then you can either sell it or refinance it. And if you if you choose to refinance it, you can move out of it and then start collecting rental income. So you start renting it out. So that's one way that you can house hack. The other way is to purchase a multifamily property, a duplex, a triplex, a quad. You live in one unit and then you rent out the other units. And what's great about that is that normally you can offset your own living expenses. Sometimes you can even still be cash flow positive in that situation. But that way you can get your foot in the door without having to come up with that 20% down payment. Yeah. So clarify though, in those situations, how people can first get the property without that 20% down payment and you know, in those situations. So with house hacking, if you're living in the property as a primary residence, you don't have to put 20% down. You can put less, you can put five, 10, 15% down. You will have to pay something called PMI, which is private mortgage insurance. So it's going to be a little bit more expensive at first. But to me, if that's the way you can get your foot in the door, it's well worth it. So does that make sense? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm used to these ways of financing from prior to 2008. After 2008, I know I ran into some snags trying to finance things with less than 20% down, but I was not financing things I was living in. I was financing pure investment rentals. And so what you're saying though, is that in this day and age in 2021, as long as somebody is living in the property, they can finance it for 10 to 15% down on a conventional mm-hmm. loan, yep. or they can do an 80, 10, 10, or on a uh, FHA loan, they can finance it for three and a half percent down. Yes, that's correct. And anyone can qualify for that. Uh, the FHA, there might be certain qualifications, but pretty much anyone can qualify for a conventional loan with less than 20% down with the caveat that you're going to be living there as a primary residence. Because what you stated is correct. You can't buy an investment property, something that you're not living in with less than a 20% down payment. Right. Got it. Got it. I know times have changed a lot after 2008. And so just wanted to be clear about a few of those things right there. And then um, in terms of wholesaling, it seems like somebody has to develop a little bit of the expertise to be able to know where the deals are. And then you also have to have a network of investors that you can wholesale the property to the deal over to, right? That you can sell the deal over to. What are some of the steps people can take for preparing themselves in those areas? One of the first steps is to join your local real estate investors association. Normally, there's one for the state or one for every major city. So when I lived in Kentucky, there was the Kentucky Real Estate Investors Association. It was something like $99 for the year to join. So these things are not expensive. They're well worth it. Whether you're wholesaling or house hacking or buying investment properties, I highly recommend joining this because building up your network is so important as an investor. Joining something like this will help you find realtors, lenders, insurance agents, contractors, and so forth. So it's it's important regardless. But as a wholesaler, you'll want to join and specifically build up a buyer's list. So these are other investors in your city that want to buy deals. And you add them to your list. And whenever you find a deal, you send it out to them to sell it to them. So it does take some 
networking efforts up front. And then it does take your own hard work and creativity to find these deals. There are lots of creative ways to find deals off market. One of the mistakes new investors make is they think, oh, I'm going to look on the MLS all day. You know, I'll work with a realtor. I'm going to look on the MLS for deals. That's not where the good deals are because that's where everyone else goes. There's too much competition. It's way too saturated. So if you think, to be blunt, that you're going to like sit on a couch and look on the MLS and find some great investment deal, if that's all it took, everyone would be doing it, right? So you really have to be creative. Some of the ways you can find off-market deals are by doing direct mail campaigns to pre-foreclosure leads, probate leads. You can put up bandit signs in the neighborhoods you're interested in, which are signs that say, we buy houses with the cell phone number. You can do driving for dollars is what it's called, where you just literally go drive in the neighborhoods you're interested in to look for signs that a property is distressed or vacant. So maybe the lawn is overgrown. Maybe the mail is stacking up. You write the address down. And then you can look on the public property tax records in your county to figure out who the owner is and what their mailing address is. And so some of these unique methods I'm spouting off, but you would send a letter to them in the mail, maybe a series of three letters offering to purchase their home. So it does take effort, but this is the way you get started when you don't have as much money. Yeah. Got it. So through wholesaling, somebody can make 5000 or 10000 or fifteen or twenty, depending on how big the sale is on the deal, which mm-hmm. is sort of the fee they charge to the buyer. And the buyer could be someone like me that like, you know, has money to invest in some properties, but doesn't want to take the time to research and find the deals. Like I would, I would be very receptive to someone that I knew that was credible, you, for example, or someone else coming to me and saying, Hey, I've got a deal. I'm going to keep 5% because I found it for you or $5,000 or whatever, because I found it for you. And here's the deal for you. That seems like that would be pretty cool. Um, yes, absolutely. And same and same with me. I mean, I'm receptive to that too. So if anyone's listening, wants to put us on their wholesalers list, you got two customers right here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. And then the house hacking to me seems like it's a it's probably a more realistic path for most people, particularly if you can get into a property for 10% down or less, right? You've got a small amount of down relative to the potential for the future. You've got a small amount of down to save up for. If somebody listening is working with Cutco, you can bust your butt to make the money. You can have it and have it be ready. And then you can get into the first property and you can kind of go from there and be able to build up from there. How did you get started specifically with your first property? That's a great question. So when we bought our first property, this was in 2017. I was 24 years old at the time. I say we because I'm talking about me and my husband. I was 24 years old at the time. And our first property was a duplex in Louisville, Kentucky that was listed for $100,000. So a lot of people ask, well, where'd you come up with the down payment? You know, And how did you scale so quickly? I always like to clarify because a lot of people assume, but I'm not a trust fund baby. I did not get help from my parents and I never made six figures from a job or a career. After college, I started off making $36,000. But I was so disciplined and so frugal back then that I was committed to saving half of my income. So I was living off something like $1,500 per month. I was very frugal. So even on that salary of 36 grand, I could save several thousands of dollars per year. 
Now, one thing that I had going for me, which we talked about on my last episode, is the fact that I graduated from college debt-free. And again, that's not because my parents helped me, but because I sold Cutco. So I sold Cutco to pay my way through school, and I was able to graduate debt-free. On the other hand, my husband uh, is a veteran, and he used his military benefits to pay for his college tuition. So he also graduated debt-free from college. That was a huge advantage for us because even though he wasn't making six figures at the time and I wasn't anywhere close to that, we could still save 50% of our income and put a lot of money away. So that was a big benefit. And then another advantage was just the fact that we lived in Louisville, Kentucky. It's a really reasonable place to invest. Cost of living isn't crazy. Housing prices are reasonable. So, you know, the fact that we could find a $100,000 duplex, you're probably sitting in California thinking, I can't even buy a parking spot for that much, right? But that was a big advantage for us is just where we were investing. And this is another, if I had known then what I know now thing, you know, I encourage people to look out of state. If you live someplace where you can't invest there because it's simply too expensive, I encourage you to look out of state, look at other cities and states, consider the Midwest. Don't be afraid to be a landlord from a long distance. Now that I've done it, I can assure you that it is easier than I thought. Yeah, um, the, the only drawback there is they've got to have 20% because they're not going to be living in the property. But if it's a 100K property, right? Like anybody listening to this can have $20,000 literally a few months from now by applying themselves to their work and being frugal. Yes. Yes. I 100% agree. And yeah. that's what my husband and I had to do. I mean, we didn't have fancy cars or live in a fancy place. It was hard back then because I was so frugal and I was seeing all of my friends pass me by in terms of lifestyle. They were getting fancy cars and upgrading to way cooler living situations. And I was busting my butt working and saving every penny that I... I would go out to eat with them and I, I wouldn't eat. I would eat beforehand <laughs> just so I could hang out with them. But those are the kind of sacrifices you have to make at a young age if you want to work towards financial independence aggressively. Yeah, so those and, are the and, things. And to be fair, you retired at age 27. I mean... First of all, some of your friends may not, they may work till they die. But also, if somebody wants to retire at age 40, they don't necessarily have to be as aggressive at their pace as you were right. to get there super fast in a you know two or three year period from zero to 10K, you know, in passive income. And so I think that, you know, your model of retiring at age 27 is an incredible example it doesn't necessarily have to be the pace at which other people progress toward this goal in life, right? Absolutely, because there's pros and cons. So everyone should follow their own journey and do what's best. I mean, I talked about some of the cons already, which is just the level of sacrifice. But also from a mental health perspective, there were months where I was overcome with anxiety and depression, it even led to. And I can't blame it on any specific thing, but it was definitely an overwhelming place to be for a while. So I really had to learn to set some boundaries, take care of myself, prioritize my my health and my self-care. That was a really big learning lesson for me. But yeah, I mean, if you're hustling so hard, it's costing you your mental health absolutely stop because there's that's not worth it at all. So I think each person can kind of know their boundaries and set their own pace. Yes. Yes. And and again, like the, the goal of being financially independent at age 40 to me is like, that's an amazing goal that people can set and to balance 
you know, the early stages of a career with your path could be a great way for a lot of people to do it. And other people are going to go screw that. I want to do what Rachel did <laughs> and, uh, and they can do it, you know? Yeah. And, but it. to your point, age 40 is amazing. Cause when you think about it, most people never reach financial independence. Most people attempt to retire at age 65 or 70 and they can't or they have to severely downgrade their lifestyle. So to think you could achieve financial independence by 40 or 45 or 50 is an enormous accomplishment. It is, exactly, exactly. So this first property was a duplex in Louisville. You guys put uh, how much down on the 100K purchase? Yeah, so by 2017, my husband and I had each saved 10 grand of our own money and we pooled that together to get to our $20,000 down payment. And so basically we depleted our savings to purchase that property. We're okay with taking on that level of risk. Others might not want to, but we depleted our savings and that's how we were able to purchase that first duplex. Got it. And you lived in half and you rented half? Um, actually, no, we were not house hacking for that one. Um, okay. So we came up with the 20% down payment so we could purchase it as an investment property. But we already owned a primary residence that my husband purchased with a 0% down VA loan. So that's where we were living at the time. Got it. Got it. So you're living somewhere else and you're able to rent both sides of the duplex. Mm-hmm. And that got the ball rolling of cash flow that began to accumulate to the next property, right? Yes. And the duplex, it's still one of the best investments we'll have ever made. It performed so well. It was cash flowing right off the bat $500 per month in profit which is, it was an something like a 25% ROI, something crazy, cash on cash ROI. And we were saving all of that cash flow to invest into the down payment for the next property. And to this day, we still own this duplex. It is now cash flowing something like $800 per month in profit. Nice. And so what was second? The next one was a larger multifamily property that we purchased... 10 months afterwards, and it was a big jump. It was a $430,000 building. Okay. Where, and so where was this? This was also in Louisville. All the properties we owned were in Louisville. So you bought this 430K apartment complex? Yes. And we put 20% down. So you're probably wondering, how did you come up with that much money in such a short time period? So by 2017, this was all in the same year. So we're all still talking about the same year. I was not making six figures, but by then I had started a new position and I was making, I think I was making 75 grand at the time. Mm -hmm. And my husband had finally gotten over the six figure mark. Um, He'd been in the workforce for like eight years at that point. So he finally started making six figures. So if we're still saving 50% of our income or more at that point, we're saving tens and tens of thousands of dollars per year. Right. Also, there were two other things that helped us scale quickly and help us come with, up with that money. One of them is the fact that any cash flow we were generating, we saved 100% of that to reinvest for the next property. So instead of saying, oh, this is amazing. We're making $500 more per month now. Let's live it up. We said, no, we're not going to give in to lifestyle creep. We're going to continue to be disciplined and save 100% of that. So that was a big thing for us. And then the last thing is the fact that I had my real estate license. So I had my real estate license. It wasn't for the purpose of having clients or helping people buy and sell houses. It was for my own purposes as an investor. 
I would represent myself as the buyer's agent on every deal and Mm -hmm. I would get paid a commission. So even though we depleted our savings for every property we bought, I would immediately get a commission check back for thousands of dollars, sometimes 10 grand or more. And that was another chunk of money that we would just save and and put towards the next down payment. Yeah. It really makes sense if somebody's going to do a lot of real estate investing that they have a real estate license for that precise reason. If you can get back that two and a half or 3% of your side back, right? Like you said, on a $400,000 property, you're getting 10 grand back that can be parlayed into the next thing. Absolutely. It was a huge advantage. My real estate license cost me about $1,500 per year to maintain. And so the way I see it is if you're going to close and do at least one transaction per year, it's well worth it. It's worth it from a financial perspective, but also from another perspective of just having that access to the MLS and learning about things that other people don't know about. So it's been very valuable for me. Yeah. And it just required a relatively small amount of study and then passing a test, right? It was super easy. I did it all online. Anyone can take and study for and pass a real estate exam. Yeah, exactly. I had a friend of mine just tell me that uh, she got her real estate license for pretty much the same purpose and that she didn't do any study. She just went and took the test and passed. So <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that tells you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So then tell me, give me the progression from there. How did you, I know you've got, you've got 38 doors now, right? Not 38 individual properties, but you've got 38 doors basically in your portfolio spread out among five or six or seven properties. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. How did you go from zero to 38? So let's see, before my husband and I met, he had a primary residence. So that was technically the first one we owned. Then when we met, we purchased a different primary residence. So we had two single family houses by then. Then in 2017 is when we really got serious as investors. So we bought the duplex. We bought the next big building, which was, I want to say 11 or 12 units. And then in March of 2018, we purchased another big building, which was another 11 units. And then the last one we purchased was in June of 2018. And the last one we purchased is pretty interesting. It was an enormous property, an enormous duplex, like biggest duplex I've ever seen. So I saw some potential to split it up into more units than what it currently was. So we bought the property. We did a renovation. Um, we, we only bought it for $125,000. It was an amazing price. It was something like 3,500 square feet. We put more units into it. We did a renovation. We were making a ton of cash flow on that last building. It performed very, very well. And actually, we recently sold that one just, I don't know, a month ago. We sold it for $325,000. So it was something like a $200,000 gain. I mean, we'll have to pay taxes. But that's been one of the most successful deals that we've done to date as well. Awesome. Nice. And th- this, uh, the first 11 or 12 unit complex you bought was 430,000. The second one, uh, 375, 375. And then the third one was 125. Nice. I mean, so you're finding units You're, I mean, you're finding deals where it's under 50 K per unit, which is really phenomenal. Obviously that's impossible in California, but it's really phenomenal to be able to do that because these are renting, I assume for five, six, seven, eight hundred bucks a mm-hmm. month. Each. Exactly. 
Exactly. Right? Like, yes. So I, I think an important point for someone to understand who is listening to this is that if one property costs X dollars and another property costs two X dollars, the difference in rent between those two is not a factor of two. In other words, you know, the property that costs X dollars rents for 500 a month, the property that costs two X dollars probably does not rent for it probably rents for 900 or 800 or something like that. So as you go up in property value, the line of how the rent goes up starts to taper off. And so finding the lower value properties per unit is one of the most lucrative ways to have a significant amount of cash flow. And again, if you live in an expensive place, we keep using California as example because that's where I am. It's hard to find those. I mean, there are places in California where you can find those, but most of the big metros, like a condo in San Jose costs at least $500,000 for one unit. So there's no $50,000 units. You know, every duplex in San Jose is 1.2 million or higher or something like that. And so this is not the place to be purchasing for cash flow at all, even though the rents are high. A million dollar property in San Jose is not going to rent for 10 times what a $100,000 property in Kentucky will rent for. And so you're better off getting $100,000 properties in Kentucky than you are getting $1 million property in California when you're looking for cash flow from the rents. And when you can get those 10 Kentucky properties all at one shot because it's an apartment complex and it's one purchase and you're getting 10 doors, that is the best of all worlds in terms of being able to get the perfect type of rental unit. Yes. So did I summarize that pretty well? Yeah. And I think, and you bring up a great point to add to that. I'll, I'd love to talk about the 1% rule, which is a rule that investors use to compare the rent to the list price and to quickly narrow down, is this a good property or not? The yeah. 1% rule never works in California or Washington, D.C. or wherever it may be but it works very often in Kentucky. So the 1% rule states that the monthly rent should be 1% of the list price. Mm -hmm. That means that a $100,000 property should rent for $1,000 per month. Okay, a $200,000 property should rent for $2,000 per month. Right. So this is not a hard and fast rule. I don't just like completely eliminate properties based on this unless it's totally out of line. This is an indicator of whether something is too overpriced to be a good investment property. So if something is listed for $400,000 and it's only bringing in $2,500 per month, that indicates to me this property is way too overpriced and it's probably not going to work. Even if I make a lowball offer, it's probably not going to work. So that's something that I use to just quickly narrow down potential deals. That's such a great, a great system to follow. And really makes a lot of sense. And again, this is a this is certainly a reason why if your purpose is cash flow, you want to stray away from the expensive types of metros where you may get significant appreciation. You know, like my house I live in has had well over 50% appreciation in the last six and a half years that I've lived here. So it's great from that context. But again, I'm not gonna harvest that. You know, my kids will. Mm -hmm. um, someday, but for rental, 
right? Like my $3 million house does not rent for $30,000 a month if that's what I wanted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And so it would, be ter- it would be a terrible investment for the purpose of cash flow. Exactly. Um, but there's so many places throughout the United States that are not as ridiculously priced as California where you can find a $100,000 property that rents for 1000 a month. And that's what we're looking for here to be able to build a whole bunch of those right, is the main strategy that you've employed to be able to get to where you are now. What are some other key steps for people to sort of find and analyze deals? There's a couple metrics that I like to go by when I'm trying to decide, is this a good deal or not? One of them is the monthly cash flow. So the net monthly cash flow that you're taking home after all the mortgage and all the expenses have been paid. My goal was to always try to aim for $200 per door, $200 per unit. So a duplex, you would want $400. Now that's not realistic in some markets. Some markets, you can't get that much. You know, I would say $100 would be a good figure to aim for regardless of where you are. If you can't get at least $100, might not be worth it. It might not be the best investment, but it depends on your goals. So that's what I was always aiming for. And one place that I see new investors mess up with that is that they underestimate their expenses for the property. So a lot of people think, oh, well, the rental income is this minus the mortgage payment. So this is how much I'm going to take home each month. And no, that is inaccurate. There are so many expenses that go along with owning a home or an investment property. You need to think through, is there an HOA fee? Who's going to pay utilities, the tenant or the owner? What about pest control? What about maintenance? What about repairing and replacing the roof in 10 or 15 years and other big capital expenditures? Who's going to mow the lawn? So there's all these things. And and what about property management? There's all these expenses you have to account for when you're running your numbers. So if you take the rental income minus the mortgage, minus all of the expenses, then you're left with the net monthly cash flow. Yeah. These expenses you just listed... I think circles back to the concept of like some of the misconceptions people have about rental properties from two contexts. One is that they don't, some people don't take these into account and don't realize they're there. And two is I think other people will globalize these to be so big that they're afraid to get in the game. How have you in your mind sort of simplified how you view all of these expenses and the management process and just how it all works? I just have to do really thorough due diligence. I never accept an estimate from somebody else without verifying it on my own. So it's that phrase, trust, but verify. So I was working with somebody and coaching somebody who had a realtor find them a property. And the realtor said, you'll be able to rent this out for $2,000 a month. And so that's what they told me. And I said, well, that's what the realtor said. What do you say? What do you think you can rent it out for? Because maybe the realtor's right, but maybe they're wrong. So, you know, there's other ways to verify that. There's a website called Rentometer, which can give you a great idea of what the rents in that area are going for. I also use Zillow. So I'll look up similar properties in a similar condition in a one mile radius, same number of beds and bathrooms, and I'll see what they're listed for for rent to give me an idea of what I could ask for for rent. So trust but verify every single number you're kind of putting into your analysis. And then even with that, I like to be conservative. So if I'm if I'm going to err one side or the other, I'm going to err to the more conservative side. Now I'm going to add a little bit of buffer. Like maybe I'm not 100% confident in this number. So if that's the, the utility expense, maybe I'll just add a little bit to the utility expense. That way, 
if it is more than I think, I'll still be covered and then the numbers will still work. So my goal was that in real life, the property would perform better than I projected on my spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. Nice. And how do you handle some of the different categories that you discussed? Like, do you use a property manager for your properties? I haven't. I haven't. I have a horror story I'm happy to share with that. I can make it quick. But one of the lessons I had to learn very early on was how expensive it can be to be cheap. Being cheap can cost you a lot more in the long run. So when we first went to hire a property manager... There was this couple working for us, a husband and wife, doing a lot of the cleaning and maintenance around the properties, always worked very hard, went above and beyond. So I figured instead of hiring a property management company, I can save some money. I can make these two people employees of our company, teach them how to manage our properties, and it's a win-win, right? Um, I can laugh about it now, but at the time, it was horrifying because it started off great. Six months in, my husband went to collect rent from our on-site lockboxes and noticed a lot of rent was missing. And it wasn't just the normal tenant paying late. It was like $6,000. And it turns out they'd stolen $6,000 and disappeared. So Mm. that was a huge learning lesson. I share that because I want other people to learn from my mistakes. You know, Property management is not the place to be cheap. You want to hire a licensed, bonded, insured reputable property management company. And most of them will charge anywhere from 8 to 12% of your rents. Yep. Yeah, that's what I have for my properties that are uh, now out of state. I have uh, a couple in Nevada and they are managed by a professional property manager and they take 10%. I think it's negotiable. So you might be able to haggle it down to 8 in some cases. Absolutely. But, uh, but they take 10% and they take care of everything that needs to be taken care of, which is a, a significant amount of uh, you know, reduced hassle in terms of you know minor repairs. They have a handy person that takes care of the minor repairs. If there's a major repair, I have to pay, but they take care of it. They handle it. The tenant calls them if something breaks, not me. Exactly. Um, and um, and they also will re-rent the place when a tenant moves out. And my experience with my property manager in Las Vegas is that I've never had my property vacant for more than like one to two weeks. That's um, awesome. So they're fast on the turnaround to get it re-rented. So that's why we pay that, right? Yes, 100%. Yeah. And, I, and I always recommend to people to hire a property manager. Because the last thing you want to do is quit your full-time job or whatever to become a full-time landlord, right? Property management and owning rental properties is not passive unless you have a property manager. And even when you do, there's still a little bit of manage the manager. So it's not fully passive ever. So I like to make that clarification. Yeah. And then I assume you have tenants pay the utilities, right? It depends on the building setup. If you have a duplex, for example, and the water is not separately metered out and measured separately in each unit, you can't really charge them for the water. You could charge them a flat fee, but in that case, you might have to just pay for the water bill on your own. In most single-family houses, though, the tenant is normally always responsible for their own utilities and their own lawn care. And then when you get into like the larger multifamily buildings... Normally, the owner pays for it and then charges some type of flat fee per unit. Got it. Exactly. Okay. 
And then to take into account major expenses, you mentioned like a new roof, it's like a roof, you know, on a single family house can be on a regular sized single family house can easily be 30 to $50,000. Um, so, you know, if you're, if you're buying one roof 15 years from now, you sort of have to take into account that that's, you know, 2000 a year that you have to be, that you're not taking in that's accruing in future expense, right? That you have to take into account here when you're doing your cash flow model. And so is the roof like the key thing that you look at for as far as a major long-term expense before you buy something? Yes. I am always curious how old the roof is. I'm always considering the other major systems, the HVAC, the water heater, the appliances. You know, What are we eventually going to have to replace? Eventually, you'll have to replace everything. So the way you account for this in your projections is you put a line item called CapEx under your expenses, which stands for capital expenditures. And this is supposed to capture all of these big ticket items that you'll have to repair or replace over time. It depends on the property and how new it is. But for example, if you decide to build in $200 for CapEx each month, it's not necessarily an expense that's going to happen, but you will be setting aside the $200 in a savings account. Okay, so that's that's how the CapEx works. You set $200 aside in a savings account each month. And that is $2,400 per year. Is that right? Yep. So after 10 years, you have $24,000 saved. That's where your new roof is coming from. And yep. so that amount could be bigger. It could, it could be lower depending on the property. But that's how you account for those future enormous expenses without wiping out all of your cash flow. Yeah, exactly. So there are certainly a lot of considerations here, but it all can be manageable once people understand it. And I do think that the best way to begin to understand it is to get the first property. Get the first one, you then gain experience understanding, you know, how does it work collecting rent? How does it work, you know, renting when it's vacant? How do you allot some of the different expenses? How do you do the research before you buy? All of these things are all parts of what you gain in getting that first rental. And then you can parlay that first one on to the next one and sort of continue to grow in experience and knowledge and continue to refine your systems as you progress. Absolutely. And when you learn to do this the right way and you read and you practice running numbers and then you get your first property, when you learn to do this the right way, something like COVID-2020 will not impact you or COVID-19 won't impact you. So a lot of the questions that I get are like, well, what happened last year for your rental income? Or, you know, people assume that I, I lost a ton of money because I was a landlord during COVID. And actually that didn't happen. And it's because I, I was so conservative running my numbers. I knew that I could lose 50% of my rents and still break even. And that's essentially what happened in April, 2020. I lost 50% of my rents for one month and I broke even. I didn't lose money. I mean, I did lose a $10,000 income stream. Luckily, because I'm, I have income diversification and other streams of income, I was not panicked. But that's the importance of doing the numbers right from the very beginning. So I just wanted to throw that in there because I think that's pretty relevant still. Yeah, great. Do you have any other advice for this audience that you'd want to share? Absolutely. I, I just encourage you, like Dan said, to just go out and do it. I mean, there, there is a sense of reading and preparing and learning as much as you can, but you're never going to be fully prepared for everything that's going to come your way as an investor. I held myself back for so long because I was afraid of making a mistake. 
I didn't want to make a mistake that would cost me time. I didn't want to make a, a mistake that would cost me money. And I'm a very much a type A control freak, perfectionist type person. So I, I just didn't want to make a mistake. But then I accepted the fact that, you know what, no matter how prepared I am or how much I've learned or self-educated, I will still make a mistake. There's no avoiding that. And that's true whether you're a first-time investor, by the way, or you've been investing for 20 years, you'll still make mistakes. So I think you just need to accept that fact and be willing to take action. There's this quote by Zig Ziglar that I love. And he said, you don't have to be great to start, but you have to start to be great. Mm, I love it. Great stuff, Rachel. Hey, so tell us about how you are impacting vector people uh, specifically with your teachings. Yes, thank you. I'm super excited. I mean, as we know, vector people are the best people and I love all of them. And I have so many relationships with my vector friends still. Something that I've been doing that started off with working with Jeff Gamboa's division is I have launched a course for Cutco reps called Get Your Financial Shit Together. (laughs) And I'm working with DVMs across the country to roll this out. But it's a course that Cutco reps that are accepted into TLA, the Leadership Academy, have the chance to sign up for and learn directly from me about all of these money management things, you know, budgeting, savings, debt, investing. So I'm really excited. More and more people are getting on board. So if that's something that sounds interesting to you as a rep, then make sure you ask your DVM or RM about it. And I would love to have you join. Excellent. And how else can people find or follow you, Rachel? Yes, thank you. Um, I'm on Instagram, Money Honey Rachel. I'm also on TikTok with 150,000 followers at Money Honey Rachel. And I would love to give the listeners my passive income starter kit for free. So if anyone wants to go download that, you can go to moneyhoneyrachel.com slash bonus. Excellent. All right. Well, hey, thank you so much for all the great value you've provided both uh, the first time and this time. This has been great. I hope you continue to have success on your real estate journey. And uh, maybe I'll catch up to you here in person when you're in California. That sounds good. Thank you so much, Dan. All right. Take care, Rachel. All right, Rachel Richards, everyone. Loved hearing the specifics of how Rachel went through her process. That was one of the most common questions I got after her first episode is, you know, hey, I want to hear exactly how does one get started? I love what Rachel said. She's not a trust fund baby. While her and her husband have had a a solid income, it's not like they've had an excessively high income to be able to get this process started with. In fact, Rachel's income at the outset was only 36K, but she was very frugal with her money and she found the right location to start in, in her case, Louisville, Kentucky, where she could get a property for $100,000, a duplex for $100,000. So think about being frugal with your income, finding the right location where you can get this ball rolling. Rachel promoted the uh, 1% rule, which again is for every $100,000 that a property costs to purchase, you want to be able to get at least $1,000 in rental income. And that is a good metric to look at when considering what is a good buy. This is precisely why California properties are not that great because where I live, the median house 
price is well north of $1 million. You know, so if you're trying to buy a single family home in San Jose and pay $1.2 million, that's got to rent for $12,000 a month to be worth it. And it doesn't rent for $12,000 a month. It rents for $4,000 a month. And so you're not getting that 1% rule in an expensive place. So looking for that is key. Be willing to go out of state if you live in an expensive place to get a first small property, maybe parlay that to a second bigger property, then maybe look at taking some of your returns to be able to buy a residence where you live in the expensive area that you can live in part and rent part of and continue to kind of build that up. Having a property manager is key. That was a good insight that Rachel shared that I also would echo. Understanding your objectives, right? How much of your objectives are to replace your current income. For Rachel, that was a key part of her strategy. For me, I was not ever looking to, you know, quit my job or retire from my work. I was going to continue working to build up more and more and more income, but wanting to continue to diversify my investment strategy, both in real estate and outside of real estate. And so what are your objectives, right? Understanding that. And then last, I would say to realize that this is a process. It's a process that oftentimes takes many, many years to develop into something really, really, really exciting. Rachel did this in two or three years where she went from zero to $10,000 in passive income. And that's very admirable and amazing and possible for any of you that want to do that, to live a lifestyle the way she lives now. For other people that may not have that specific objective or maybe want to put that much pressure on yourselves to do something so fast, having a 10-year, 15-year, 20-year type of plan is awesome as well and can put you in a great place later on in your life. Great stuff here from Rachel Richards. Follow her on social media. Let me know what you think of the episode. And I hope to see many of you at future Vector events, particularly if you're in the Western region. Rachel is going to be at our end of summer conference in Las Vegas. So if you're in the Western region, you can meet her in person September 17th and 18th. Of course, I will be there along with all the other leaders of the Western region. And if you are elsewhere in Vector, Rachel will be running that training for all Leadership Academy reps. And you can follow her on social media and you can hit me up as well anytime you want. I'd love to get feedback from our podcast audience. Thanks, everybody. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's episode, please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player. Subscribing to the podcast is free and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives.